This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 11. Frugality versus Conspicuous Consumption Frugality and an impulse to maintain a modest lifestyle have roots going back to ancient times. Sumptuary laws in ancient Greece and Rome, as well as China, Japan, and other countries, forbade excess ostentation. Stories about the disgusting flaunting of wealth are one of the longest-running perennial narratives in many countries and religions. Opposing these frugality narratives are conspicuous consumption narratives. To succeed in life, one must display one's success as an indication of achievement and power. The two narratives are at constant war, with modesty relatively strong during some periods and conspicuous consumption dominant at other times. Both are important economic narratives because they affect how people spend or save, and hence they influence the overall state of the economy. In fact, these narratives can have profound economic consequences that economists and policymakers would not necessarily anticipate. Frugality and Compassion in the Great Depression During the Great Depression in the 1930s, frugality narratives were particularly strong amidst the perception of widespread involuntary unemployment. They were also a reaction to the perceived excess of the 1920s, by which we can see, which we can see by the rapid growth, then, of the phrase, keep up with the Joneses, generally used to disparage people who think that, to keep up appearances, they have to buy everything that their successful neighbors buy. Indeed, the use of that phrase grew most rapidly during the 1930s. It is difficult to find accounts of depression-induced modesty, modesty in the era before the Great Depression. The new modesty stayed high during World War II and into the 1950s, and then started to decline. The new modesty that coincided with the Great Depression and World War II evolved out of the strong narrative that people were suffering through no fault of their own. They lost their jobs because of the Depression, and some lost their lives later because of the war. Maybe your Jones neighbors were doing very well, but your Smith neighbors were having a terribly difficult time, like so many other families during the Depression. A huge constellation of human tragedy narratives prevailed through word of mouth among friends and neighbors, stories of families out on the street after the father lost his job and defaulted on his mortgage and lost the home through no fault of his own. Under such conditions, the reasonable response, even for people who still had a job, was to postpone buying the new car, throwing a lavish party, and keeping up with the expensive fashions. Such self-imposed austerity helps to explain the severe contraction at the beginning of the Depression, as well as the contraction of consumer purchases during World War II. Depression-era narratives in their own words. The talk of the time reflects the dominant narrative. Here is a Depression-era letter to the Boston Globe's Household Department Where Women Help Women Confidential Chat column a sort of Twitter or Reddit from another era, where women, where women would write and advertise one another under pseudonyms. The following letter appeared in March 1930, six months after the 1929 stock market crash. Quote, 
Dear Mikado, in one of your recent letters asking for a budget, you said that your savings had been wiped away in the recent financial crash. So I am addressing this letter to you as we surely have something in common. Only in my case, we not only lost what we had, but are deeply in debt as a result. However, my problem is this. We can pay back this money in about 10 years if we continue to live practically as we are now living, that is, in our present home, by practicing rigid economy. Of course, we would move to a cheaper house, live on only the bare necessities of life, and get out of this debt sooner. But what I would like you, Lancelotta, and any of the other sisters who will write to me, to tell me whether you think it is wise to do this. I am afraid to move, for I fear the moral effect on us. Our standard of living will be lowered, and I am afraid to think of the readjustment and the effects of such a move on our spirits, our courage, and outlook on life. This may not seem very brave, but unless one has been through such a period, it is hard to realize the strain and the worry and hard to keep a calm outlook on life. Chirold. End quote. When one has neighbors like Chirold, who are desperately hanging on, showing off with extravagant consumption would be seen as deeply unempathetic. It is noteworthy that the writer introspectively refers to our spirits, which calls to mind Keene's idea that depressions are caused by declines in animal spirits. Her decision whether to sell the house is framed in such psychological terms. She has to manage her family's spirits. Managing people's spirits was an important theme of the era's talk, from the common American to the nation's leadership, from individual heads of households to the President of the United States, Herbert Hoover, who spoke optimistically and encouraged optimistic talk in others. It seems highly likely that Chirold's family and many other families in a similar or worse situation would postpone buying a new car. Realistically, the children in each family would receive almost no signal that the family is in financial trouble if their parents postpone the purchase of a new car. However, they would notice canceled vacations and canceled trips to the movies. Indeed, concerns about family morale became a new epidemic after 1929, peaking in 1931, but staying high for the rest of the Great Depression. There had been an earlier rush of stories about family morale during the 1920 to 1921 Depression as well. The rising divorce rate was attributed to the loss of morale, especially the shame of a father who was unable to find a job. People considered this loss of morale as a new long-term problem in the making, a problem that might increasingly that might become increasingly significant in the future. A women's group in 1936 asserted, quote, The family is the unit upon which our whole American system of living is built. Any collapse now of its morale or loss of its solvency will have a disastrous effect on posterity, end quote. This narrative justified postponing unnecessary expenditures while maintaining an attitude of normalcy, but in doing so, it contributed to prolonging the economic depression. It also offered a reason for families not affected by the depression to avoid conspicuous consumption, in deference to the perceived suffering of other families and the outlook for more of the same. Newspapers offered suggestions for maintaining the family morale without spending much. Quote, Frequently, if resources are at a low ebb, much may be done by rearranging the furniture, changing the positions of heavy pieces, 
always being careful to maintain a perfect balance in the room, and moving pictures into different spaces. Many a woman, by dint of some ingenuity along this line, has secured all the benefits of a vacation without leaving her own four walls. Her outlook on life has been cleaned and pressed, in a manner of speaking." End quote. Listening to other people's stories about the Depression in their own words also offers striking insights. In Only Yesterday, 1931, Frederick Lewis Allen spoke of a more modest countenance <clears throat> and deeper religiosity, of striking alterations in the national temper and ways of American life. One could hardly walk a block in any American town or city without noticing some of them. Rita Weinman, an author and actress, described the change, too, in the Washington Post in 1932, comparing the, the Great Depression with the 1920s, saying, quote, During the, those times of inflation, when we were right on the edge of a precipice all the time, we lost our sense of perspective. We spent fabulous sums for objects and pleasures out of all proportion to the value received. If it cost a great deal of money, we promptly came to the conclusion that they must be good. Take the matter of home entertainment. Many of us had almost forgotten how much fun it can be to gather friends around one's own table. Any of us, any number of, of us suffered from restaurant digestion. End quote. The Great Depression became a time of reflection about what is important in life beyond spending money. Writing in the United Kingdom in 1931, columnist Winifred Holtby asked, quote, In other words, can we not use this period to get rid of a little snobbery and bunkum and live lives dictated by our own tastes instead of our neighbors' supposed notions of what is done? With so much to do in a world so rich in experience, must we shut ourselves into little genteel compartments in which we all adopt the same arbitrary standards, wear the same things, eat the same things, and produce the sad, same sad monotony of appearances? Can we not remember the wisdom of Mary Lloyd's old song, It's a little of what you fancy does you good. Not a little of what, you're, of what you fancy your neighbors will fancy that you ought to fancy. Can we not dare to be poor? End quote. In 1932, near the lowest ebb of the Great Depression, Catherine Hackett, another writer, explained her view of the new morality in the Great Depression. Quote, in the old boom era, I could buy a jar of bath salts or an extra pair of evening slippers without an uncomfortable consciousness of the poor who lacked the necessities of life. I could always reflect happily on the much-publicized day laborers who wore silk shirts and rode to their work in Fords. Now it was different. The Joneses were considered to be callous to human misery if they continued to give big parties and wear fine clothes. End quote. Despite such narratives, it appears that some dimensions of the hard times of the Great Depression were a desirable improvement over the 1920s. Anne O'Hare McCormick, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for the New York Times, wrote in 1932, quote, There are times when the complacency, the rugged selfishness, and the greed for hokum of one's compatriots are hard to bear. This is not one of those times. At the bottom of the market, we are much nicer than we are at the top. Main Street is in a depression in the most neighborly street in the world. 
Main Street in a Depression is the most neighborly street in the world. It is a very patient thoroughfare, end quote. In addition, it was noted during the Great Depression that there was no increase in crime despite the high rate of unemployment. Perhaps this phenomenon was related to the increase in neighborly and patient sentiments that softened the sense of personal failure created by unemployment that might otherwise have led to crime. Though the streets may have become more neighborly, the human misery was palpable on street corners. In the early 1930s, there was a perfect epidemic of panhandling and street begging. In 1932, the Washington Post reported, Panhandlers have become especially active during the Depression. They find that people who do not believe in giving to professional beggars are especially soft-hearted at present. An epidemic of apple sellers starting in New York City in the fall of 1930 spread nationwide. The sellers were practically admitting that they were beggars, often displaying signs saying, unemployed, or eat an apple and help me keep the wolf away. In effect, they were begging, but selling apples made them look more reputable and approachable. Newspapers also carried stories of crimes committed by beggars who hadn't received the requested alms, so their presence created an atmosphere of fear, which surely discouraged conspicuous consumption. Beyond the visible beggars, there were narratives about the internal struggle of others not visibly employed. Benjamin Roth, a lawyer, wrote in his personal diary on August 9th of 1931, quote, most professional men for the past two years have been living on money borrowed on insurance policies, etc. The only work that comes in now are impossible collections on a contingent fee basis. Everybody is digging up old claims and trying to realize on them. Tempers are short and people are distrustful and suspicious. There is nothing to do but work harder for less money and cut expenses to the bone, end quote. But mostly, the fundamental change was an atmosphere of collective sympathy, like the feeling in the wake of a shared tragedy. This atmosphere explained people's willingness to work for a contingent fee or to buy apples on a street corner, even when they were not in the mood for an apple. However, by stopping any conspicuous consumption, they inadvertently worsened the depression. Street begging was not limited to the United States. In Germany, where the unemployment rate was even higher than in the U.S., there was a striking rise in panhandlers and in unemployed youths involved in crime in the years just before Adolf Hitler came to power. The higher crime and unemployment rates help explain Hitler's appeal to many voters. After his election in 1933, Hitler dealt with the problem by imprisoning German panhandlers and homeless people in concentration camps. Meanwhile, much of the world has embraced the frugality narrative. Film critic Grace Kingsley noted in 1932 that motion pictures had become less interested in luxury, saying, quote, Due to depression and its effect on the public producers are soft-peddling luxury display in their pictures. Whereas heretofore the heroine appeared to live in the public library buildings, so vast was her domicile, now smaller rooms are shown, and display of wealth is not nearly so lavish. And now, the elegant Richard Barthelmess and the exotic Marlene Dietrich are scheduled for roles in simple stories of home life. End quote. 
These movies offered scripts for living. People may find themselves not ever consciously deciding to consume less, but consuming less out of pure subconscious suggestibility. Church sermons also invade against the display of wealth, as reported in a, in a newspaper article in 1932. Quote, in this time of depression, public dis publicly displayed extravagance is an offense, the Reverend Dr. Mano Simons, pastor, asserted yesterday in his Christmas sermon in All Souls Unitarian Church. The article further quotes his sermon, I hope that anyone tempted to splurge in costly rejoicings will get that thought that they would be in bad taste. Such things always stir a profound resentment, and this winter such resentment must not be stirred." End quote. Note that the argument here is basically moral, not an appeal to self-interest. As Anne O'Hare McCormick had noted when writing about Main Street, USA, people's attitudes toward one another had changed. They became concerned about managing others' perceptions of them. The Washington Post observed that the conclusions one might draw about others' status and human worth from observing their frugality had changed entirely. Quote, and then the mode turned a handspring, as so often happened, and poverty was chick. I cannot afford it, was said brazenly, even boastingly, because th didn't this imply that one had lost lots of money in stocks and things? Whether one had had any or lost any, of course. End quote. Indeed, during the Great Depression, people took, and still sometimes take even today, a strange pleasure in telling depression hardship and loss stories about themselves, their friends, and their relatives. The narrative has moral dimensions. Because their poverty was not their fault, there was no shame in it, and there was a dignity in sympathizing with those who suffered. In addition, the sin of enjoying riches amidst poverty was more immoral when one had long unemployed neighbors who were barely getting by. New Modesty Crazes The poverty chick culture spurred new crazes in the 1930s. The bicycle craze was notable. Many people began riding bicycles to work or to go shopping in urban environments. Department stores installed bicycle racks for their patrons. The bicycle craze arose partially from the desire to postpone buying a new car. Those who already owned a car decided to keep the car going rather longer. Those who did not own a car decided to continue taking public transportation as they always had, or to ride a bike. Why did people postpone their car, their car purchases? Being unemployed was one reason. Another was thinking that they might become unemployed. In 1931 sound movie, Six Cylinder Love, based on a play produced during the Depression of 1920 to 1921, shows some of the complexities involved in a man's decision to buy an expensive car. As a result of that decision, his wife and daughter are transformed into extravagant spenders, and the family also attracts sponging friends, who believe that they are rich because they own a pricey car. The movie plot itself became part of a narrative constellation about the consequences of extravagant purchases. Seeing your neighbor unemployed and hearing stories of desperation and struggle made it obvious that you should not buy a new car this year. A 1932 article in the Wall Street Journal also noted the anti-conspicuous consumption motive for delaying a car purchase. Quote, 
one seriously but not easily discernible obstacle is now blocking the exercise of their spending power by those who have it and are capable of using it judiciously in the benefit of industry. This is the widespread fear of being considered ostentatiously extravagant. It is no mere guesswork that asserts such a handicap upon efforts to revive trade. The automobile industry, for one, has proved its reality on an extended scale by gathering conclusive evidence that important numbers of people with money and the actual need of a new car are denying themselves through fear of neighborhood criticism. A new species of sales resistance is among the psychological products of depression, namely the haunting doubt whether or not ownership of a new car may be, or may seem to others, as an indecent display of affluence, end quote. The Wall Street Journal makes an excellent point. A visibility index of consumption categories created by Ori Heffitz seeks to measure how much other people notice consumption expenditures. The index ranks automobiles as the second most visible consumption category out of 31 categories, second only to cigarettes. If you no longer want to look rich, skipping a new car might be the best thing to do. The feedback loop soon became apparent. Some people postponed buying a car or other major consumer items, which led to loss of jobs in the auto and consumer products industries, which led to more postponement, which led to a second round of job loss, and so on for several years. The numbers tell the tale. Sales of new cars by Ford Motor Company, which had adopted many labor-saving mass production machines, fell 86% from 1929 to 1932. Why was the feedback loop so severe, and why did it happen when it did? To answer these questions, we have to look more closely at the underlying narratives. In the home, there was trouble with the sudden increase in leisure. One anonymous woman wrote to Confidential Chat in 1932, quote, Dear Globe Sisters, may I come to this wonderful column with my problem? I have been married six years and have two children. We were married when quite young, and unfortunately my husband has no special trade. I worked too, but when our first baby was born, I had to quit. I got him to take a course to advance himself, and I paid for this. Also, all expenses connected with the baby and our living expenses while he was not working. He worked steadily until a year ago, and then like so many others, he was laid off. Since then, he has had only a few days now and then. I could not work last summer, as my second baby was only a few months old. This winter, we have spent with relations, and I have been helping with the work, occasionally at sewing or nursing. But we don't get by, and I am worried. What bothers me most is the attitude of my husband. It doesn't seem to bother him much to any of any to live like this. I would hate to have it thrown at my children that they were on the town. I feel the way things are now that we are just living on charity, and this can't go on forever. Is this attitude on the part of my husband my fault in working in the beginning, or is it his fault for being slow, so slow to take the responsibility? Don't think that my husband isn't a good man, for he is a fine fellow in many respects, but he seems to entirely lack any money-making ability. When I earn a few dollars, he thinks it is all right for me to take it and pay the bills. I feel so ashamed. I can't accustom myself to a man taking money from a woman, 
even if she is his wife. Is there anything I can do to bring him to his senses? I could not let my own people know of this situation. I have the promise of a good job soon myself. If I get it, I feel that I shall just pay the children's board and let him shift for himself. Would this do any good, do you think? Please welcome me and advise me. Lucy Ambler. End quote. Lucy had to be reminded by one of the Globe sisters that her husband's problems were not her husband's fault. Quote, Dear Lucy Ambler, Your letter regarding an irresponsible husband certainly aroused my interest. I am married to a man who is like your husband in many respects, and I think we have a great deal for which to be thankful. You say he is a good man and a fine fellow. Is he to blame if, like millions of others, he finds himself with no means of support? If he always worked steadily until a year ago and did his best for his family, can anyone look down upon you if you're in need at the present time? Isn't it a fact that your dis dissatisfaction is really with the present economic conditions and not with your husband? Katerina, end quote. We can imagine the conversations between husband and wife about the making of large expenditures if they talk about the topic at all. The feelings of hurt, betrayal, and helplessness would be difficult to talk about, if not just for Lucy Ambler and her husband, but also for other couples who feared that they might themselves find themselves in the same situation. We can easily imagine that talk about high-priced expenditures might be verboten, along with the expenditures themselves. When such stories are rampant, and when unemployment is increasingly long-term, any employer who offers a job to a laid-off worker will be regarded as a sort of hero. But there is an offsetting tendency for the employer to worry about hiring someone with little money-making ability, and few other options. As a Pennsylvania Emergency Relief Board administrator said in 1936, quote, Another factor of importance in connection with the unemployment situation, which, of course, is at the basis of relief, is the fact that many men and women who were merely being carried along by their employers in the pre-depression days, for sentimental or other reasons, will never get back to their old jobs, end quote. Employers need to balance morale and productivity. As Truman Bewley found in his interviews of employees, sorry, of employers during a recession in the 1990s, quote, managers were concerned about the morale, mainly because of its impact on productivity. That said, they said that when morale is bad, workers distract one, one another with complaints, and that good morale makes workers more willing to do extras, to stay late until a job is done, to encourage and help one another, to make suggestions for improvements, and to speak well of the company to outsiders, end quote. It seems safe to conclude that employers are particularly concerned about worker morale during hard times. They often try to boost their employees' morale by helping them feel successful in their jobs and by using a non-differentiation wage policy, paying high performers the same as low performers, despite the negative effects on incentives to work hard. In addition, employers often continue to employ weak employees for sentimental reasons or to maintain workplace morale. But there is a darker side to the story. The worst days of the Depression gave employers a plausible excuse for laying off weaker employees without generating stories of their inhumanity. When times are a little better, 
they would rather not rehire the weak employees, which can lead to long-term unemployment for those who have been laid off. Modesty Fashions, Blue Jeans, and Jigsaw Puzzles Blue denim fabric, formerly considered appropriate only for work clothes, started to become more fashionable during the Great Depression, though earlier celebrities had made denim fashion statements. For example, James Williams, governor of Indiana from 1877 to 1880, was nicknamed Blue Jeans Bill because of his insistence on wearing them even to formal occasions. According to one observer, for Williams, the coarse blue fabric was a symbol of equality and democracy. But it was not until the 1930s that the material gained popularity. <clears throat> In 1934, the Levi Strauss Company created its first blue jeans for women, naming them Ladies Levi's. Then in 1936, Levi Strauss put the first fashion logo on the back pocket of its blue jeans. Vogue magazine featured its first blue jeans, clad cover model in the 1930s, and the women started deliberately damaging their new jeans to make them look worn, putting an intentional rip here and there. We can trace blue jeans' associations with different cultures over the decades. In the 1920s and 1930s, blue jeans culture fit in with the poverty chick culture, the cowboy story culture, and the dude ranch culture. Starting in the 1940s, blue jeans became associated with an altogether different culture, starting with Rosie the Riveter during World War II, and then with high school, youthful rebellion, and women's liberation. The blue jeans fashion truly exploded in the 1950s, propelled to new heights by the hit 1955 movie Rebel Without a Cause and his handsome star James Dean, who died at age 24, a month before the movie was released, while driving his sports car recklessly. The death was perfect, if not ghoulish, publicity for the movie. Some fans of the film went to extremes, for example, Douglas Goodall, a London mail truck driver who not only wore blue jeans, but also by 1958 had watched the movie 400 times and legally changed his name to James Dean. By this time, the blue jeans narrative was losing its connection with sympathy for poverty, and it may have lost its status as an economic narrative. Nonetheless, the ubiquity of blue jeans, based on their cheapness, practicality, long life, and others' fashion decisions, has allowed the blue jeans epidemic to continue spreading to this day. Also connected to poverty chick was the jigsaw puzzle craze. To occupy themselves during a quiet stay-at-home evening, some people bought one of the new cheap cardboard jigsaw puzzles instead of the more expensive traditional wooden puzzles at newsstands with the evening newspaper on their way home from work. Jigsaw puzzles were suddenly on sale everywhere, and people wondered, what psychological quirk lies buried in the human brain to spring to radiant life at the rattle of odd pieces of material in a cardboard box? <clears throat> Bicycles, blue jeans, and cardboard jigsaw puzzles might be nothing more than logical, rational responses to the bad economic conditions of the Depression. They were inexpensive. But the enthusiasm for these products, the crazed nature of the phenomena, suggests that their narratives help to explain why people stopped buying expensive consumer goods during the Depression, which, by extension, helps to maintain the length and severity of the Depression.
Perhaps people would never have ridden a bicycle to work in the 1920s, not only because they were rich, but because doing so would have seemed odd. Only after one heard the narrative describing others who rode a bike to work or stayed home assembling jigsaw puzzles in the evening would one be comfortable doing the same things. And then one might continue doing them for many years, weakening the market for more expensive forms of transportation and entertainment, and thus slowing recovery from the depression. Likewise, if building a beautiful new house is considered to be in bad taste and stirs profound resentment, then those are pretty good reasons not to build the house, thus helping to explain why housing construction virtually stopped during the depression. We see here that economic dynamics, the change in demand for goods and services through time, depend on subtle changes in narratives. Over the course of the Great Depression, people started to move beyond poverty chick, perhaps because of changing narratives about what people's apparent poverty implied about them. As the Washington Post noted in 1932, quote, But now another handspring has turned. Now it is no longer chick to imply poverty. If one had lost money in unwise speculations or stocks, he has had plenty of time to recover from the worldwide upheaval. If he still claims poverty, well, the implication is perhaps, after all, he never did have anything. End quote. What conclusions can we draw? The modest economic recovery that started at the bottom of the Great Depression in 1933 occurred, at least in part, because people were spending more because poverty was no longer so chic. All of these narratives imply that the causes and effects of the Great Depression extend beyond economists' simple story of multiple rounds of expenditure and the effects of interest rates on rational investing behavior. The decline in modesty and compassion narratives since the Great Depression may help to explain many economic trends. The modesty decline is likely related to the rise in inequality in the share of national income earned by the top 1%, documented by Thomas Piketty in his 2014 book, Capital in the 21st Century. It is also likely related to the long-term decline in managers' feeling of loyalty to their employees, documented by Louis Ischitel in his 2000 book, The Disposable American. A narrative downplaying modesty and compassion was supported by Donald Trump in his 2007 book, Think Big and Kick Ass in Business and Life, co-authored with Bill Zanker. The frugality narrative was repeated in Japan after 1990, with different stories and personalities. The high-flying Japanese economy of the 1980s had given way to the lost decades of the 1990s and beyond, and to stories similar to the modesty and compassion stories in the U.S. The Washington Post summed up these narratives in 1993. Quote, Tokyo, the once free-spending Japanese consumers have a new model citizen, Ryoken, an 18th century hermit monk who gave up his worldly goods to seek the pure life. Ryoken was featured recently in a primetime television drama and a magazine cover story, a book about him and other ascetics, The Philosophy of Honest Poverty, has sold 350,000 copies since September. These days, Japanese consumers seem to be trying to emulate the virtuous Ryoken. 
consumers have sobered up and tightened their, per their purse strings after a half-decade spending binge fueled by a roaring economy and soaring financial markets, end quote. Ryokan is remembered in many stories for his kindness and generosity to the less fortunate. He let mosquitoes and lice bite him out of sympathy for insects, and he once offered his clothes to a would-be thief who discovered he had nothing to steal. Most Japanese did not go so far, but the new virtue lasted throughout the lost decades in Japan. American Dream and analogous narratives displace the frugality narrative. James Truslow Adams coined the phrase American Dream in the first edition of his New York Times best-selling book, The Epic of America, in 1931. The term is virtually never found on ProQuest news and newspapers before 1931, except for, except for mentions of a bed spring that promised good sleep, marketed in 1929 and 1930 as the American Dream. As figure 11.1 shows, Adams's American Dream went viral, vastly outpacing similar terms going back centuries, such as American character, American principles, and American credo. The American Dream was a long, slow epidemic that is still growing today, almost a century after Adams coined the term. Adams, who died in 1949, saw only the very beginning of the epidemic. Adams defined the American Dream as follows, quote, The American Dream, the dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for every man, with opportunity for each according to his ability or achievement, is not, it is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely, but a dream of a social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable, and recognized by others for what they are, regardless of the fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. End quote. Some might say that Adams's account is a somewhat bland description of any country's dream, not a fiery manifesto that we'd expect to go viral. Indeed, it sounds similar to the China dream, espoused by Chinese President Xi Jinping, similar to the French dream, espoused by former French President Francois Hollande, and to the Canadian national dream, all modeled after Adams. But there must have been something appealing and original about this idea that made it slowly and consistently contagious. The phrase American dream has a ring of truth to it as a statement of American values. The U.S. is a proud country that has no aristocracy, allows no titles or royalty, announces in its Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, and allows free enterprise to proceed with little government interference. However, it is also a country that permitted slavery until 1863. Long before Adams defined the American dream in 1931, slavery was seen as an abomination and an embarrassment inconsistent with the nation's stated commitment to equality. And American blacks having not received equal treatment even long after the abolition of slavery. But by coupling American with dream, the phrase might have defined a trend toward a better social order, in which each man and woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable. 
That's what a dream is, the sense of an ideal future, a deep-seated and fervently desired wish that is partly fulfilled today and might become completely fulfilled in the future. When Adam says that the American dream is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely, he seems to assert that the American dream is in part a dream of these material things. Of course, people want to provide for their family, and they want a good standard of living, but they want everyone to have a chance to achieve the same goals. The original discussion of the American dream in the 1930s, before the term went viral, was primarily intellectual. For example, George O'Neill's 1933 intellectual play, American Dream, examined whether American society truly embodied this dream. Later, in 1960, another intellectual play by Edward Albee, similarly titled The American Dream, was more critical of consumerism. The phrase American Dream cropped up repeatedly in honest discussions about America. Some intellectuals who were critical of the popular notions of economic success in the United States used the term ironically, but other intellectuals thought it measured up real aspects of the American character. For example, civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. used the phrase in his legendary I Have a Dream speech, which he delivered during the Civil Rights March on Washington, D.C., a large crowd stretching between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. In that speech, on August 28, 1963, he looked confidently toward a day when this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Congress made King's birthday a U.S. national holiday in 1983. When President Ronald Reagan signed the act of Congress into law, he referred to the I Have a Dream speech. Later that year, King's widow, Coretta Scott King, said, Help us make Martin's dream, the American dream, a reality. We see how seemingly small and unpredictable moments in history, the publication of Adams's book and a single speech by King, can develop gradually into the backbone of a powerful narrative that continues to grow by contagion for decades after. The celebrity aspect of narratives, so frequently discussed in these pages, is at work in the American Dream narrative. Martin Luther King Jr., an inspirational figure who was assassinated as he fought for the American Dream, made for a far better narrative, and he pushed aside James Truslow Adams in the American Collective Consciousness, giving the American Dream narrative the human interest it needed to achieve enormous contagion. <clears throat> in fact, Adams wasn't enough of a celebrity to have his name attached to the narrative. Less than one-tenth of one percent of ProQuest news and newspapers hits for American Dreams since King's I Have a Dream speech mentioned James Truslow Adams, but almost three percent mentioned Martin Luther King Jr., Ultimately, the generally accepted narrative of the American dream includes a wish for prosperity for everyone, framing it in a way that, seem, that makes it not commercial or selfish. It turns upside down Thorstein Veblen's idea of conspicuous consumption undertaken solely to prove one's superiority. As a result, the American dream became extremely useful in pitches for consumer products, that encourage potential purchasers to feel better about their purchases, such as a new home 
or a second car. In fact, ProQuest News and Newspapers shows that more than half the use of the phrase American Dream has occurred in advertisements rather than in articles. The Mutating American Dream Home Ownership In the 1930s and 1940s, most of the ads using the phrase American Dream promoted intellectual products, books, plays, sermons. But as time wore on, and as the epidemic strengthened, the phrase took on a different dimension. The American dream turned into owning a home, with the underlying sense that owning a home implies patriotism and commitment to the community. While advertisements have used the phrase less in recent decades, they continue the presumption that the American dream justifies generous expenditures on, on home ownership. Over two-thirds of ProQuest news and newspaper hits for American Dream since 1931 also include the word house or home. The American Dream has been used to justify government actions supporting the housing bubble that eventually collapsed during the world financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. In 2003, near the height of the bubble, Fannie Mae, the government-sponsored mortgage giant, adopted the following slogan for its advertisements. As the American dream goes, so do we. That same year, the U.S. Congress passed and President George W. Bush signed the American Dream Down Payment Assistance Act, which subsidized home down payments. Since 1973, 265 bills and resolutions introduced into the U.S. Congress have included the words American Dream. President George W. Bush heavily used the slogan Ownership Society during his 2004 re-election campaign. The slogan was a variation on the American Dream theme. Bush was calling attention to a society that respects ownership and in which people take ownership, that is, take responsibility for themselves. He said in 2002, Right here in America, if you own your own home, you are realizing the American Dream. He spoke of the good feelings homeownership lent. All you've got to do is shake their hand and listen to their stories and watch the pride that they exhibit when they show you the kitchen and the stairs. Controlled experiments have shown that marketing of consumer products may be enhanced by appeals to patriotism. By attaching the term American dream to moral rectitude and to patriotism, this narrative epidemic probably raised the homeownership rate in the, U- in the U.S., as well as stimulating business in general. The results have been both positive and negative. On the one hand, the American dream narrative justifies people's desire to purchase expensive cars, extravagant homes, and other lavish consumer products and services. And services. The narrative has probably boosted the real estate sector, both directly through consumer demand and indirectly via government support or expected future government support, should anything go wrong in that market. On the other hand, the American dream is embodied in the desire for home ownership played a, as embodied in the desire for home ownership played a strong role in the U.S. housing boom before the 2007 to 2009 world financial crisis and thus added to the severity of the crisis. Today, 
the American dream narrative justifies conspicuous consumption and the ownership of a pretentious house in stark contradiction to the frugality narrative that was popular during the Great Depression. The American dream narrative offers a justification for feeling proud of one's accomplishments, a sense of moral rectitude. The gold standard narrative, to which we turn in the next chapter, has a similar moral theme. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.